The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Heaney. Dr. Heaney is a pediatric hematologist and clinical investigator and the Associate Chief of Hematology and Director of the Sickle Cell Program at Boston Children's Hospital. He is also an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and my wonderful colleague, Dr. Heaney's research is focused on the management of patients with sickle cell disease and rare iron disorders. Today's podcast is focused on understanding clinical trials, particularly for rare disorders. Dr. Heaney, welcome to today's podcast. Dr. Heaney, tell us a little bit about why you became involved in clinical research. Well, during medical training and my early practice, I became very interested in some basic questions that came up when our patients presented to us with whatever their symptoms were. And and I was always sort of more interested in patient-oriented research. I'm a people person. I found myself a little more interested in that than in the other pathway, which might be more wet bench or laboratory-based investigation in medicine. And it seemed very relevant when being presented with a patient who has a problem is to try and solve that problem. And in many cases, the problem or the symptom or the disease didn't have a clear treatment or clear answer or a way to make the patient feel better. And so without much time passing in your practice, you really begin to determine what are the important clinical questions that arise in your clinical care. And then as you get more experience and more education, you begin to understand which of those questions don't have a clear answer. And then those are the ones which naturally are facing you and your patients. And as the patient keeps coming back with the same question, then you're really motivated to try and help them get that answer. So I really think it's, for me, it's often rare diseases or rare presentations of common diseases are the most interesting. And perhaps as a pediatrician, we see more of those and sometimes refer to them as the black swans. These are the sort of the really rare variants that can be really highly educational in terms of basic understanding of disease processes, but also can be very interesting to make interventions that could potentially really change the path of their disease and and their health. I think when seeing patients who have rare diseases, it becomes very obvious that there are so many unmet needs in terms of what we know about those conditions, but also about different treatment options. I agree, it's hard to see patients who have so many unmet needs and not want to participate in research or have the opportunity for research for those patients. The other thing that's really attractive to it is the team that you work with for me. And so it's, you know, we're both lucky to work in large institutions, which have represented both basic scientists, both clinical experts, a variety of patients and other allied health professionals. So we are always seeking that sort of holy grail as a physician investigator of trying to, we call it translational medicine. So where we can translate an important or interesting clinical finding from the clinic, translate that to a colleague who maybe more focused on the basic science side to help us understand whether it be the underlying pathophysiology of how that disease is working, how that symptom or problem that the patient is having, understanding that. And then really the lightly trodden road, the real hope is that that will then inform a therapy that then you can bring back to that patient. That's a pretty rare thing to have happen, but really exciting when it does to have that full arc of 
disease presentation, disease understanding, disease therapy back into the patient. And so that translation goes in both ways. We sometimes say from the bedside to the research bench and from the bench back to the bedside. So I think that's ultimately exciting. And along that way, you have this team of nurses, pharmacists, clinical research coordinators, statisticians, and other people that really make it a joy to do every day. And I think we're lucky too to be in an institution that's a teaching institution. So we have the opportunity to work with trainees who are interested in healthcare and have them learn about these rare conditions. And I think they also help us to identify all of our knowledge gaps and their questions. And when they learn about the conditions, and sometimes they themselves come up with interesting research questions too. Well, they sure do. And luckily, they're smarter than us most of the time. So yes, I'm constantly being reminded of my own inadequacy with our amazing trainees. And as you see different opportunities for research and learn about different trials and research studies that are being offered or that are being conducted at other institutions, how do you decide which studies to open as part of your practice or which clinical trials to open in the hospital that you're in? Well, I think it's a balance of all sorts of different things. I mean, it's a balance of disease groups that you have with you, like how many patients with a particular problem, that whether that makes it feasible to open a trial. I think it involves also the expertise that you yourself have developed or that colleagues in your group have developed. And so there's certain attraction sometimes to certain diseases or categories of diseases. So that would be one thing. And I think also there's a sort of alluded to previously that there's this idea of unmet clinical need. So when there's a problem or a disease or a symptom for which there's nothing to offer. It somehow seems even more obvious that that's something to focus on uh, because offering something is always seemingly better than nothing. When it comes to a therapy, obviously, we always provide our care and understanding and empathy, but that doesn't seem to go as far as we'd like it to, obviously. And then I think there's a lot of sort of practical things. Time is one. Time and money are so connected sometimes. And having the availability of my time to be able to give to that and to do it properly and thoughtfully is one thing. And so time can depend a little bit on what the trials are like, whether they're what we call a non-interventional trial, one where we're just collecting information about the disease, or an interventional trial where we're actually trying to intervene somehow, whether it be with a medicine or some other therapeutic maneuver to try and change the trajectory of a disease. And so those are sort of basic things. But more practically, if there are multiple trials open for one particular disorder or complication, yeah, it gets a little hard how to prioritize which one is most important to your patient population. And then I think you have to think about in that prioritization process, which of the studies answers a really important question or the most important question that'll make a difference to the care of that patient and the outcome of that patient. Then there's a lot of other sort of stuff under the hood that probably patients wouldn't worry about, you know, in terms of the feasibility of it, the design of it. Would anyone actually want to do this study if it requires a brain biopsy once a week? Of course not. So I think there's some important things to think about in terms of what the trial entails for the patient. And then there's the bandwidth of our team. And is it going to be possible to actually do the trial in a safe and effective way following all the rules that we want to make sure that the outcome is believable? And so that's why I think it can sometimes be challenging. But, you know, in, in rare diseases, which what you and I do a lot of, we're not in that situation very often where we're having two or three competing trials for a disease. I've never been so lucky. I joke inappropriately a lot of the time dealing in rare pediatric diseases. I feel like the ugly kid at the dance that no treatment developer ever wants to talk to because they're not interested in me. But now there's been a change, a wonderful sea change in a way through a number of probable administrative and policy measures that now rare diseases are of interest to not only pharmaceutical companies, but also academic researchers. And so 
there's more interest on this. And so now I'm sort of a little more attractive at the dance. People want to talk to us about these rare diseases and potentially have developed therapies for them. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. I think it's an incredibly exciting time that there are competing clinical trials, even for the same, for patients with the same rare condition. So I think it's an interesting time in our hematology practice where we do sometimes need to make a decision about which trials to open in the same rare disease population. And I, I think too, for people who have a rare disease, particularly for the hematologic conditions that we see, it's unusual for them too to be hearing about clinical trials and having these opportunities. And I wondered if you could comment on how patients might think about clinical trials who have rare disease or why clinical trials are important for drug development in particular for rare diseases. Well, the clinical trials are so important because you can think about it in different ways. The least impactful clinical trial to a patient might be a natural history study or what we might call a registry study, where with a rare disease, we're simply gathering information about that patient's experience and understanding over time how that disease presents, what complications it may cause. And only with that information can we then design interventional trials later on to see whether we can interfere with that disease progression and symptom development. And so I think that that sort of trial is one thing that's very important and fairly low impact for most patients. And I think most patients with a rare disease would be interested in contributing their experience to others to understand a broader view of what their disease process means, not only to them, but also to potentially future patients who have the disease. And many of these rare diseases, they're inherited. And so it might even have impact on their future family members. So I think there's lots of potential motivation for that. But, you know, fitting even a minor time requirement into our busy lives can be challenging, but I think it's pretty motivational. And then I think for drug or interventional therapies, if the disease is important and has significant impact, we want to see if we can change that impact. And the only way to know with any certainty whether a therapeutic maneuver, again, drug or otherwise, really makes a difference is to study it in a very careful way to make sure that the intervention doesn't have any side effects or toxicity and that it actually has true benefit because it would be terrible to approve a medication or therapy that might have side effects, but we're not certain that it has benefit. That would be the worst possible outcome. So I think that being part of trials and leading trials like this, it's important to do it and to do it well and to make sure that the answers you're getting are true and lasting and will have an impact on the population that you're treating. And of course, too, the regulatory requirement is to have a clinical trial in order to have approval for a new drug. So there's no possibility of having 
new treatments and new medications in particular without having a clinical trial to study the medication in the ways that you just had said to make sure that it's both effective and that it's safe and how it compares to current therapies. And so it's incredibly important for people with a rare condition to consider participating, not just in the registries, as you mentioned, but even considering participating in a clinical trial and having the potential benefit for themselves, but also that potential long-term benefit for the people with this disease, that there may be additional treatment options in the future. Registries are particularly important in these rare diseases that you and I deal with because they're rare. (laughs) And uh, as a result, every kernel of information we can glean from patients who have these rare diseases can help us inform and educate future patients and providers, and even more importantly, pick endpoints or outcomes to follow in in an intervention that we might make later on. And so they are really important. And often they're diseases, these are diseases where less than 100 people may be affected worldwide or less than 1,000. I mean, these are truly the, again, the black swans, the rare of the rare that that you don't expect to see. But they can inform even common diseases eventually, the more we learn about it. I agree. I, I mean, I think registries are really our only way to know about rare complications in particular and rare disorders. And we won't know what to monitor for in patients with rare disorders unless we understand both common and rare potential complications. And also for the design of clinical trials to really understand which patient should be eligible and what are important outcomes or what are meaningful changes in an outcome. You don't really know those things unless you understand the disease well. And the way to do that is often with registries and rare conditions. So I think the importance can't be overestimated. One thing that I think is sometimes confusing for patients and families who are thinking about participating in a clinical trial are the different phases of clinical trials. And what does it mean if you participate in a phase one study versus a phase three study and what they might expect with each of those different designs and why there are those different phases? Can you speak a little bit about that and what do the different phases mean? Sure. So there are four different phases for clinical trials. These are meaning interventions or or medicines that we're using in humans and people. And so we can talk a little bit about each one of those phases. But I think it's also important for people to understand that before the treatment got to that point, to the point where they're using it in humans, a huge amount of study has already occurred in that therapy. And so we sometimes refer to sort of drug discovery and drug development, and that's really going back to that bedside to bench that I was talking about earlier, where people are really trying to understand the underlying disease processes, the mechanisms that lead to disease. And in that education to themselves is that they can understand potentially where a disease might be susceptible to treatment and where we could interfere with that disease process. And then that leads down a pathway of drug development and something called medicinal chemistry, where you can design drugs to fit into certain pathways and interfere with disease processes. So that's one early part. And a lot of that happens sort of in the darkness. If you will. Nobody hears about that. This is the kind of thing that people sometimes get upset. We send millions of dollars studying yeast. Why would we do that? Well, because these are how we understand how disease processes work and how they may have relevance in human disease. And then once a candidate medicine or candidate therapy has been designed. And then we have to go through a bunch of preclinical testing long before it ever gets to a phase one human trial. And that's where you have you have to be able to prove you can manufacture the drug, that it's not toxic uh, to cells in a test tube. It's not toxic to a whole animal. And so there's a lot of toxicity testing that goes on, understanding the doses that may be effective in animal models of disease. So all of that's happening over 
many, many years, usually prior to it ever gets to the fact that you're, you're going to be involved with it as a patient or a subject. So then a phase one trial, which is really the earliest in-human trial of a therapy, is usually done in people who don't even have the disease. It's usually done in healthy volunteers. You may see signs in the bus station or other places to volunteer for a disease like this or pardon me, a treatment like this. And for the most part, this is really close monitoring of these healthy volunteers to see what the effect of the drug has on their body. And the goal is really to limit risks and maximize the potential benefit of the drug later in the disease population. And so really, these are of short duration. Usually, they might only be a weekend. It might be one dose. It might be a few weeks. And it's usually in a fairly small number of people when we think about more common diseases. But in rare diseases, by necessity, later on, it'll have to be in a small number of people. So that phase one is really a normal, healthy volunteers looking to see what the drug does with a single or or very few exposures to the new drug. And then the next phase, phase two, which may be more what you're be offered maybe first by a center if you have a rare disease, is looking at this drug now in the disease population. So if you have disease X, that's the type of patient who wants to be in the treatment for that. And so Again, the focus here is much, much more on safety and tolerability and the formulation of the medicine. Is it a pill? Is it a liquid? Those sorts of things and how tolerable it is. And there's always one eye on whether it works or not. But usually these studies are quite short. Again, they're not really looking at overall long-term benefit of the drug. We're really looking at the safety and trying to find the best dose, the dose that is least likely to cause toxicity and most likely to cause some benefit. So often studies in rare diseases, we have to combine these. So you might see a phase one slash two study where there's a combined study where there's one phase with folks and one phase with the patient population who has the disease. And that's out of necessity due to the rareness of the disease. And so that's the focus of that early phase one and phase two. Phase three trials are sometimes referred to as pivotal trials. These are the ones that the person or group or company developing the medication are going to use the results of this trial to hopefully gain approval of this disease that they can manufacture and potentially sell it. And so this type of phase three trial is, again, in the population with the disease. There are no more healthy volunteers. And usually it's to compare the treatment that's under study with the standard of care. And in many rare diseases, there is no standard of care. There's no therapy that's known to help. And so in that case, you may be testing your new treatment against nothing against what we call placebo or something that essentially has no effect on the body or effect on the patient. So that's why we sometimes call these placebo-controlled studies. And that's really to make sure that we're not having a problem with bias or something else that might cause the result of the study to not be true. And that's something we definitely want to avoid. So the sort of classic trial that you think about are, they call them randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trials. Randomized meaning the patient doesn't know what they're getting. The doctor who gives it to them doesn't know what they're getting. That's the blinded part. And it's a randomized meaning it's chance as to whether you get the new treatment or the old treatment of the placebo. And so that's really sort of the gold standard, what we use there. And again, what's submitted to the FDA or in Europe, the EMA, to see whether or not it works. And then finally, phase four trials, which are probably pretty rare and in rare diseases, these are trials which are performed after the drug is approved and to really focus again on long-term benefits and potential long-term side effects that may happen for patients who are on the drugs or the new drug for a very long period of time. And sometimes these are referred to as post-market safety monitoring. And so this can be years and years long to participate in these or not. So those are the general ones. So it starts with early on small groups of, of healthy volunteers and moves into the disease population looking mostly at safety and toxicity. And then really the phase three is the one where we're really trying to determine with some certainty as to whether or not the medication or the therapeutic intervention works. 
Thank you for that explanation. I think one thing that comes up a fair amount when talking with patients about phase three trials in particular is about placebos and people worried that they'll be in the placebo arm when it's double blind and they don't know and why there needs to be a placebo arm. And I think, you know, we end up spending a lot of time talking about why there's a placebo, which is a requirement often by the regulatory agents to compare the new treatment to the standard or placebo, as you were saying. And I think part of that is that there's not always an understanding of what the natural history of the condition is outside of the new trial. And so you really need to see that to be able to compare that to the treatment. And I think too, sometimes it's not clear too what are symptoms of a disease and what's a side effect of a treatment so that you might see things when someone's taking a trial drug and it's not clear, is that from their underlying condition or is that because of the new treatment? And by having a placebo arm, you actually really can see that very well in terms of both what to expect in someone who's not on the treatment in terms of whether something's effective, but also in terms of what other symptoms or issues come up over time in somebody with that condition. What's often offered as part of those phase three trials, which we often talk about with patients, is the option of an open label part of the study. So many trials, phase three trials that have this placebo arm and oftentimes this double blind period where the investigator, the clinician, and the patient don't know whether there's a placebo or there's the trial drug, there's often opportunity after that period of time for the patient to have what's known to be the drug, this open label, you know it's the treatment being studied, being given to the patient. So even though there's often this period of time where you don't know if you're on the placebo or the drug, for patients in the study, there'll be oftentimes a period of time where you know that you have the drug so that everybody who enrolls on the trial has that opportunity to, to try the drug. And so that in some ways outweighs the period of time where some people might get placebo. Yeah, you might even say that's the best possible world. I don't know whether modern day it's, what is it, FOMO, fear of missing out? You fear that you might miss the active treatment that you're hoping is going to impact your disease. And I think you're right, is that I mean, you could even look at it the other way, that the best possible scenario might be to get the placebo initially, let the other people find out whether the drug has side effects. And then as the open label part where everyone at the end of the initial observation period gets onto the medication, assuming it's safe, that's an opportunity to benefit from that. And so, yeah, I think that it's so important, though, this idea of a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial, or at least comparing to the standard therapy, is so important because we really need to be as certain as possible that what we're seeing is a benefit of the drug or a side effect of the drug. I often see a trial of a new medicine and I go, oh, look, you know, 10% of the people who took the new drug had headaches. Oh, that's, you know, maybe this medicine causes headaches. But then you look at the placebo arm who weren't getting the drug and 8% or 11% of them got headaches too. Oh, well, headaches are common. So we can't really blame the medicine for that particular complaint that the subject had. So that's why the placebo or the standard treatment is so important. And, and not that we're attributing a benefit when one isn't there. It's not just the result of chance, a chance observation in one patient in one center. We really want to make sure that it's, that it's not, that it's true. And I think, you know, in rare diseases and in patients who are desperate for some benefit or some treatment, 
you know, there's a chance of what we call bias, that maybe the patient really wants the medicine to work so much that, you know, maybe that symptom I'm having isn't as bad as it was. Maybe I'm getting it. And the investigator might want it to work so badly, too, that they say, well, you know, Johnny actually seems pretty good today. And they might underestimate. So that's why, again, it's so important to compare it to the standard or placebo in those cases. And that's hard. I understand. You, you want control. People want control. And you have to give up some of that control for a randomized blinded trial. Definitely. I wonder if there is specific advice that you would offer people who are considering participating in a clinical trial. Well, there's no doubt that people who volunteer, and it, it is a voluntary thing to be part of a clinical trial. There's a consent form that you have to go through and understand all the potential known side effects or benefits of the drug and what we know so far. But ultimately, we're trying to answer a question about the disease process that you have. And the only way we'll move forward and learn about what interventions or what medications may provide benefit is to participate in clinical trials. I've already used FOMO. What's the other one? A NIMBO or a Not in My Backyard or NIMBY? People often say, wow, that's a really interesting trial, Dr. Grace or Dr. Heaney. This is something that clearly I can see has merit and very exciting, but we're going to let somebody else do this. And when you get the answer, you come back and tell us about it. And that's understandable. It's sort of human nature, but it also means that we're not going to find the answer as quickly as we would like. So it requires a little bit of courage, but also full understanding about what's involved in participating fully and committing to it. Because perhaps worse than saying, no, I don't want to be involved is saying, yes, I want to be involved, but then not following up with all of the trial requirements, because then we're not going to get the right answer either. And that wouldn't be ultimately a good outcome either. So I can understand that there's this challenge that you have as to, should I try something new that could be of no benefit? might even potentially give me a side effect, but the only way we're going to know is to do it. And in rare diseases, the stakes, if you will, are even a little higher because, you know, there may be so few patients that each patient who enrolls on a study or declines to enroll makes a big shift in one direction or another as to whether that trial is going to be completed and the answer is ever going to be learned. I think that participating in a trial, particularly a treatment trial, is a major commitment. There's the time component. You have generally more visits than you otherwise would in routine care potentially more lab draws or other types of monitoring than you would have in routine care. Also, this expectation of almost perfection in terms of taking the drug exactly as you've been instructed to do and committing to having all of the different studies and other tests that need to be done as part of the trial. And so beyond even just understanding the potential benefits and potential risks, there's the time commitment component that I think people need to feel invested and committed to. But I do think that participating in a trial, as you said, is a real opportunity even for the person participating that they have the opportunity to potentially try a treatment that's not available to them in any other way. And for somebody who has symptoms or complications related to a condition, this really does represent a potential opportunity for improvement in terms of their everyday symptoms or an improvement in a complication that they're encountering. When we mentioned placebo, we didn't even talk about placebo effect, which is something people may have heard about in their reading or literature or on the TV. And you talked about the time commitment and being part of a trial. And, and there's no doubt that being part of a trial, you're being watched a little more carefully, which is probably a good thing in many respects if you have a disease. And in a way, you're going to have us up in your business, if you will, a little more frequently than usual, a little more monitoring maybe than usual. And it's pretty clear that even patients who are getting the placebo that they may do a little bit better overall because of that extra monitoring. And that's what we call the placebo effect, why it's even so important to make sure that patients who are getting no drug intervention or no therapeutic intervention, they may actually have some improvement in their symptoms or otherwise, just because they're being followed more closely. 
So that's sort of even a benefit of the placebo. It may be small, but there is some benefit there. And we have to distinguish that from any potential benefit from the medication. Anyway, so that's why we follow so closely, why we have that placebo or standard arm of the therapy to make sure that the drug we're testing really has the benefit is detectable. Dr. Heaney, I want to thank you for participating in the podcast today. I know I've enjoyed our conversation very much, and I'm sure the listeners will too. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is nokpkdeficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.